What's going on, traders? Welcome and welcome to the SPACs attack. But we talk everything SPACs. So if you're a SPAC fan out there, give me a big thumbs up. Hit the subscribe down below. Hit the share. We got a great interview coming up. Yes, yes, we got it. NGAC. Stick tight, guys. We're going to get into that, get into a little bit of that EV action. But first things first, let me go ahead and bring on my man, the brains to this show. Chris Catchy. Get access to actionable news and market research with all the information you need to invest smarter and profit faster. Start your free trial today at pro.benzinga.com. What's going on, Mitch? How we doing today? Uh, you know, another exciting day out there in SPAC land. I'm plugging you in, Chris. I'm plugging you into the wall right now. You're, you're not on that low adapter voltage, high voltage here. I'm turning you up, Chris. Let's bring this energy up. You guys smash the like. Let's get this party started. Yeah, guys, smash that like. Uh, you know, we we we're getting some viewers in here still from from the other show, uh, but we have a great interview uh, today. So we're gonna talk XOS. That's NGAC is the SPAC merger partner. So all about trucking today. We also have some huge headlines, right? We saw a SEC fine yesterday that we're gonna get into. How will that affect SPACs? Um, Mitch, I also just saw a, a big mover that I didn't even have a chance to mention to you before we got on the show that we'll have to dive into with the watch list. So uh, exciting day, but, uh, you know, yeah, so let's uh, let's get it started. It looks like the other show is ending. So uh, for everyone joining in, here comes headlines, and please smash that like. All right, guys. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, another exciting day out there. Um, one of the news items I saw today, we actually had two uh, SPACs partnering together. So this is uh, LiCycle and, and Hellbiz. So uh, the SPACs are PDAC and GRNV. Um, so we had LiCycle on the show uh, you know, they're working on recycling lithium ion batteries that have reached their end of life. Um, so now partnering with Hellbiz, which is a uh, electric mobility company, right? Electric bikes, electric scooters. Um, so they partnered with them to take those batteries and help recycle them. So, you know, that, that's a big partnership here. Uh, a good one here from LiCycle. Definitely something to watch. Um, you know, again, that's been a big point raised that when these electric vehicles reach their end of life, what happens to the batteries? So LiCycle going public, PDAC, one of the companies helping to, to you know, have a solution for, for that problem. And we have EVGO, EVGO, which recently despacked. They announced the acquisition of Recargo for $25 million. So uh, they said that together, you know, this is going to help them with their uh, first mover advantage, that national public fast charging infrastructure and Recargo, which has app development, market research, data licensing, reporting and advertising. You know, advertising may be the key in there, right? We saw uh, Volta go public, um, SNPR, where they have the fast charging and also show, you know, the advertising on those large screens. So maybe that's something uh, EVGO looking to uh, get into in the future. So uh, definitely keep that on watch here, that small $25 million acquisition. And former SPAC EQOS, this one's in the, the crypto, the digital payment space. 
reported first quarter revenue of $2.5 million, which was eight times higher than the, the previous year. Again, $2.5 million, not a huge number, but rapid growth. Um, you know, as they hit on their expansion plans, average daily volume on the Equinox exchange in June was $179.6 million, which is up from $15.9 million in March. So let me say that again. June, average daily volume, $179.6 million. And back in March, it was $15.9 million. So, you know, I have to believe that the second quarter from EQOS is going to be a huge one for them. Um, so that is a, a former spec that I am watching today after that earnings report. And we have Proterra, PTRA, Citigroup, initiating coverage with a neutral rating and a $16 price target. I am long shares of Proterra. The, the stock has been getting beat up over the past couple days. Um, you know, so keep an eye out on the $16 price target neutral rating from Citigroup. And one of our movers earlier today, but not moving as much anymore, we have Velodyne LiDAR, that's VLDR. They announced a partnership with NVIDIA a Metropolis program for the Intelligent Infrastructure Solution, Traffic Monitoring and Analytics. Um, you know, so again, NVIDIA Metropolis uh, partnering with Velodyne. We talk all the time, you know, about these uh, LiDAR companies and how they need to get big deals and, and big partnerships. And here you have, you know, one of the largest chip companies with NVIDIA working with Velodyne. So this is a, a interesting deal. Um, you know, I'm excited to see how this one kind of plays out because Velodyne, you know, one of those top LiDAR companies on watch. Then, as I mentioned, we did get an SEC fine yesterday. So, you know, SEC has been circling SPACs for a while. Looks like they finally, you know, are showing their muscle. So yesterday, uh, SRAC, the SPAC that is bringing momentous public, the, the last mile delivery, the FedEx of space, an $8 million fine from the SEC to the SPAC saying that the CEO of both the SPAC and the CEO of Momentus both um, offered, uh, you know, uh, uh, misleading disclosures. So essentially saying that, you know, they lied to um, people that were investing in the SPAC. So again, $8 million penalty, um, you know, and this one I have to question now, uh, you know, it's supposed to close in August. We haven't gotten a date. Um I was long SRAC. I actually sold out of my position. Uh, this thing has faced all kinds of problems. Um, you, you know, we got a, a change in the valuation terms. We had the CEO or chairman of Momentus resign due to his ties to Russia and the concerns over NASA deals in the future. Now we get SEC fines. Uh, you know, we talk all the time about finding the companies partnered with SpaceX. Momentus has a deal with SpaceX, but SpaceX has actually started distancing themselves from Momentus. Um, you know, so I, I have to just say that at this time, I just don't know if we get this deal done. And there are a lot of red flags still going on. And we have uh, Virgin Galactic SPCE announcing that they will report second quarter earnings on August 5th. Obviously, that's going to be a, a big earnings report, right? Because there's going to be lots of comments and questions surrounding that Richard Branson flight. 
what happens next? Will we get an updated timeline? Um, and also, they're, they're going to get questioned about that share offering. So, you know, could they have positive comments to talk, you know, uh, about what that means for future growth? Why are they raising money? Um, how much more money do they need? And, uh, you know, how is the reservation process going? So I, I think, obviously, August 5th going to be a key catalyst for Virgin Galactic. And movers yesterday, we had the two deals. So CBAH up 1.1% on the deal and IVAN actually down 4.3% on that battery deal. Uh, you know, I, I got to think that at this point, the market just wants, uh, you know, in, in terms of battery companies, wants battery companies that have revenue or at least it within a couple of years. And in this case, SES a couple of years away. Um, you know, similar to a quantum scape and market just not uh, loving it. And then our one rumor out there, uh, this is a, a interesting one, and uh, I'll bring Mitch on here at the end to discuss. We've got SLAM, S-L-A-M. This is the Alex Rodriguez-led SPAC in talks to bring Panini Public, the trading card company uh, based out of Italy, that rumor from Bloomberg saying that the transaction could value the company at $3 billion or more um, with the terms possibly changing. So Panini, uh, you know, has been around over 60 years. It has sold stickers for every FIFA World Cup since the 1970 tournament. Um, I know I've definitely seen some of those World Cup stickers from Panini, the, the, the albums to put the stickers in. They also have trading cards. Um, you know, so this is uh, where they have deals right now with the, the NBA. They have deals with the UFC they recently reached this year. They have deals with the NFL. They have deals with Disney, deals with Epic Games, um, you know, for, for uh, eSports cards. So this is an interesting one. Uh, SPAC Slam raised $575 million, wanting to target sports, media, entertainment, and consumer technology sectors. I have to think, you know, having a SPAC from Alex Rodriguez could help, you know, get the brand awareness for a trading card company since he used to play the game. Um, Panini also has a direct-to-consumer Panini Instant platform. They have some digital cards, um, you know, which could be a key for growth. Distribution in over 100 countries, you know, so international presence, a key and over a thousand collections launched annually. We did get the TOPS merger earlier uh, with MUDS. So there's some questions here on valuation and revenue. So TOPS was valued at $1.3 billion. TOPS had revenue of $567 million in 2020, um, you know, split between physical, digital, and their confection business. Uh, they estimate revenue to hit $292 million, uh, in 2021. Now, we haven't seen all the financials from Panini, but Panini hit $1.4 billion in revenue back in 2018. So when you compare Panini to Tops, you have to remember that Panini, they have more revenue than Tops. They also have the bigger deals, right? They have NBA, NFL, NHL, UFC, whereas Topps big business line right now is Major League Baseball. So I saw some concerns out there about, you know, uh, Panini be, being valued at $3 billion versus Topps at $1.3 billion. But I like this deal as it stands. I am long slam commons. 
what do you think, Mitch, uh, you know, uh, tops versus Panini and how could some of those, you know, exclusive sports deals, you, you know, change the valuation of these two companies and, you know, maybe create a battle where tops wants a piece of some of those other leagues. What do you think? Well, I got something for you here. So one of the things that I'm going to be doing is, uh, you got to put some bad news out there. Chris, unfortunately, will not be with us on Thursday and Friday. So what I want to do, guys, is on Friday, we're going to be going into like kind of the top SPAC game. We'll be looking at some top SPACs. But tomorrow, what I'm going to do is actually try to uncover some kind of things that I personally feel are, are some of the things that we don't want to see in spec. So one of the things is Chris and I try to be really transparent, bring you guys what we see. So I'm going to be going into some conversations, some things that have happened in the SPAC industry. So definitely come come tomorrow. We're going to have a great conversation about this. But going into Slam, I, I think if you look at the revenues, so like let's say, all right, so you, you said it, right? MUDs at one3 billion valuation revenues at 567 let's multiply that 567 by three since kind of that that valuation for slam here is at three billion and you're talking about 1.5 million in revenue uh 1.5 billion in revenue so that's kind of more what we'd want to see from that company so if you if you're talking more surpassed 1 billion the question is how close did it get towards that 1.5 number that's what i'd want to look at um it looks like it got uh close to 1.4 if, if i'm not to be mistaken um so 1.4 is not too off that 1.5 so essentially i think they're both kind of in the same valuation yeah the biggest question is how much did panini grow because the the biggest I That's could find question. was that 1.4 billion was in 2018. So the the question is, you know, we we saw a tops report, you know, some big growth in 2019, 2020. Did Panini have the same growth? Mm-hmm. You know, and the the other thing to watch is, you know, again, they have the World Cup stickers, right? So every 4 years when there's a World Cup, does Panini's revenue you know, does it change? Is there lulls, right? Where you see huge revenue, then a drop down for the next couple of years, then a huge drive, then a drop. You know, how much does the World Cup play in? How much do does the NBA play in? I mean, remember though, that tops, part of that SPAC group, they have ties to some of the sports leagues. So, you know, as we've seen the battle with media companies for sports rights, I think we see that in a couple of years where Tops tries to get some of these other leagues. Or maybe if you're the NBA, instead of doing an exclusive deal, you, you go back to letting everyone make cards, right? And then you can get more money. So something to watch. But until we get the the terms and the valuation, you know, I just got to point out that Panini, you know, does have more revenue. So there was a lot of people trying to compare and saying that they didn't like the Panini deal. But really, when you look at it, they're they're pretty equal in terms of the the revenue multiple. You know, as you just said, Mitch. So, uh, you know, very interested to to see if this deal happens and what the terms are. Um, but again, I am long slam now. Uh, Mitch, I got to have you pull up the chart on uh, UP. So wheels up. Wheels this was up. the one I said yesterday. They completed that SPAC merger uh, for wheels up. A- and sure enough, 56% of people traded in their shares at net asset value. A- and then what happened today? Shares were up. They hit $15 is what I saw on my mm-hmm. chart. We're at 1127 right now, 
up 15%. Mitch, shares were halted today, according to, to my Benzinga Pro. You know, another example of one of these SPACs trading close to $10, having heavy redemptions, and then seeing this huge pop because it's got a lower float now and less shares out. What do you think of this huge move today on its debut uh, with the new ticker? Yeah, someone threw a, a good 100,000 shares into this probably all at once. And then with that being said, that's why you saw that price spike. You can see the volume was very, very low in pre-market. It was only trading literally 1,000 shares on the five minutes. And now in, in those kind of three pop candles right before the, the halt, you got 126, 228. And then right after that 380, you see that increase of volume going into the move, into the resistance, and then it halted opening up there. And then immediately also giving that 134,000 shares right back. And then you'll see what 716,000 on that pullback. That, that I think was some people just taking quick profits. Um, you know, when, when you get a stock to pop from, a, let's say, $10 to 15 I mean, you're not talking no longer a 20% move. You're talking up there towards 50% move. And, I mean, that's not a bad reward, especially if you're trying to trade this one more on a swing trade. I definitely would probably have been smacking that that cash button, especially near 40%. I mean, that that's how we used to get these moves to make a lot of the times uh, 40 to 50%. And, and now you're seeing it on that pop, but definitely also is probably seeing some profit taken. Yeah. I mean, this might be a new trend, Mitch, that we have to pay attention to that these stocks, you know, that when they get that heavy redemption, you know, 50% of people trading in shares, you know, it lowers the flow. And as soon as retail investors hear that and get a hold of that, you know, we see these big spikes and, you know, I, I was surprised to see it hit 15. But now the question is, you know, can this thing sustain more of the $11 level for a former SPAC that traded at $10 for so long, right? So, and again, if you're one of those shareholders who, who redeemed your shares at net asset value, you, you just missed out on some gains today, um, you know, so that's something to keep in mind here, too. So uh, part of the despacking process to, to pay attention to. All right, Chris. So what do we got up next? All right, guys. So super excited. Another exclusive interview here on SPACs Attack. Joining us on the show, we have the co-founder and CEO of XOS, Dakota Semler. The company is merging via SPAC with NextGen Acquisition. That ticker is NGAC. Welcome to SPAC's Attack. Tired of getting left behind on winning trades? Join Benzinga's free masterclass on July 24th to learn how to spot breakout trades before they skyrocket. Featuring live interactive lessons on how to trade meme stocks, read charts, identify trends, and so much more. To register for free, go to events.benzinga.com. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mitch. Good to be here. And thank you guys for, for taking the time to meet with us. Of course. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm going to go ahead and let Chris do some questions. I'll be playing a little bit of video in the background so you guys can see a little bit about XOS. But go ahead, Chris, knock out some questions and I'll be back with some of my own. All right. Perfect. So, you know, Dakota, we're all about SPACs here. SPACs, D-SPACs. So the first question we always like to start with here is, you know, why a SPAC deal to bring XOS public and, and was a traditional IPO also a consideration for your company? Yeah, it's a, a really good question. When we were thinking about our fundraising plans for the future uh, last year, 
One of the questions was, we have a lot of order demand from customers and that demand has grown significantly in the, in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, as you know, people are ordering more things online. I'm ordering my groceries to my house. I'm ordering all kinds of other stuff to my house. And so that drives up the demand for these last mile delivery vehicles that we're building. So in that demand curve, we wanted to make sure we could ramp our manufacturing facilities as quickly as possible to meet some of the needs of our customers. And going the, the route of a, a SPAC transaction really helps us do that, not just quickly, but also to ensure that we have a partner that's gonna help us think through that process. And we really, I think, have been incredibly fortunate with NGAC. The, the co-founders, uh, George and Greg, have deep experience in the industrial sector. Uh, Greg actually ran a number of different businesses uh, at Honeywell, at Perkin Elmer, a few other places. And then George was at Goldman Sachs for a number of years. And so he's worked with a, a great deal of our clients, some of the large logistics companies and other OEMs. And so they're really intimately familiar with how to scale a manufacturing business like ours, particularly in the trucking sector. And we realize that having good partners like this isn't just valuable from having strong capital partners. They can also be strategic in helping us in our corp dev and our business development strategies and really scaling that manufacturing system as quickly as possible to meet some of that customer demand. You know, going about that traditional IPO process, you have a lot of the same opportunities and benefits of, of raising significant amounts of capital, but it's also good to have a team of, of advisors and leaders that have really helped build a build companies before awesome yeah so uh you know for anyone watching which i see a couple people in the chat already saying they're not as familiar with xos so uh give us the the basics here before we dive into the detailed questions what is xos all about absolutely so we are a manufacturer of medium and heavy duty commercial electric vehicles we started this business about five years ago, and it was because myself and my co-founder were actually fleet operators. We saw how challenging it was becoming to actually operate a diesel fleet. All of the new emissions regulations, which were changing almost every single year, the increasing price of fuel. And for our fleet, we were a, a last mile fleet. So it made sense that electric could actually do all of the routes that we needed it to do. So we started Exos really just to focus on those segments, the last mile and the vocational vehicles that we're gonna be operating in city centers under 200 miles to, per day and returning to base where they have dedicated charging infrastructure. And it turns out that that was the market that was really gonna go electric first. We started working with some really large fleets including UPS, FedEx, and a number of others. And that is where there's been immense growth from the growth of e-commerce, particularly accelerated by the pandemic. Uh, but also because we're just now ordering a lot more stuff online. So one of the things that's unique about Exos is because we started from day one working with fleets and actually letting them drive our vehicles, testing the vehicles like the ET1 semi-truck that you saw in that video, fleets have actually been able to operate these vehicles and purchase these vehicles for several years now. So they're operating them in their fleets around the country, driving on the roads, delivering packages, moving cash, moving food, and that's given us an incredible level of traction with these customers. So customers will start, they'll evaluate a few vehicles, then they purchase more, and then they continue to purchase more. And it's really about how quickly can they change over their last mile delivery fleets. What's cool about Exos and our technology is that we've been actually building our own battery systems that have been operating on road, controlling our vehicles, powering our vehicles on our own chassis. So we're not waiting for the supply chain to mature. We're not waiting for our technology to go through testing and validation. 
We already have trucks on the road. And that's why we need this capital from the SPAC transaction to help us really scale our manufacturing for that customer demand we have. Perfect. So that that slide right there, we see some, uh, you know, key customers. Obviously, you know, for for a lot of our viewers, UPS is going to jump off the page because we're we're pretty familiar with that company. We we saw it in you know the video as well. Can you talk a little bit, you know, about the, your customers? Maybe some uh, numbers and in terms of you know hard orders or you know uh, potential orders down the road uh, with letters of intent. Yeah, so we wanted to make sure we were actually distributing ourselves across a wide array of different customers. It's great to work with one customer, and we've had the benefit of working with UPS for several years now and building a vehicle that actually fits their fleet. So in in the U.S., UPS operates over 90,000 of these package cars, like the one you see on the left there. And those are 1,000 cubic foot vehicles to deliver their packages. Uh, We've also worked with a number of other fleets. We don't want to put all of our eggs in just any one basket. And so we've been working with other parcel delivery fleets, independent service providers that contract with those fleets. And it's been a a really big learning experience for us because no fleet operates the same vehicle, right? They need their custom specifications. They need to be able to fit into their operations. So we've, we've been able to build this platform that allows us to sell into different applications from cash and transit to parcel delivery to food and beverage delivery uh, to uniform rental and linen servicing. Those are all very, very different specs. And so that platform allows to sell to a broad array of customers. Thus far, we've built and we have contracted orders for about 116 vehicles this year. That will be our deliveries for 2021. And then we have fully contracted orders for 2022 as well. Going beyond 2022, uh, in 2022, we're going to be doing about 2,000 vehicles. Uh, That's in our manufacturing plans. Going into 2023, we're planning to build about 8,000 vehicles. And we have about 4,000 orders in 2023, but those are optional orders. And what that means is based upon performance criteria, how efficient the vehicle is, the range that it's getting, uh, how serviceable it is in the uptime that it gets in the fleets, those optional orders basically translate into build slots and and contracted orders. So for us, we're all about building something that's going to be valuable to fleets and create a, a good ROI or return on investment for them as they start to make that transition to zero emissions vehicles. A lot of fleets are talking about their sustainability initiatives, but most fleets are really gonna be compelled by the return on investment and the total cost of ownership savings that our vehicles provide. So when we're thinking about 2023, we're talking with customers right now about building out those orders. Generally, fleets will order on a 12 to 18 month basis. So they're not gonna order two, three, four years out into the future. So for a lot of our build slots that are going into 2023, that's where we're talking with customers today is to fill out the remainder of that production volume. Perfect. So then, you know, uh, along with the current customers, we also see here uh, on slide 17, we have, you know, the the potential. So we have some of the, the target areas that you're looking at, you know, last mile, business services, work trucks. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit, how does... Uh, Exos, you know, position itself to win additional contracts and appeal to to some of these other companies looking to upgrade or add new trucks to their fleet. Yeah, so some of those additional customers have already come over the line. Uh, Anheuser-Busch and ABMBev is, is one of those customers. Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. There's we're bringing customers in daily, really. And I would say as we start these conversations. 
Uh, some of them have already begun and have been you know, in process for a year or more. Uh, and many of them have yet to yet to begin. So those are markets that we see as the ideal market for electrification. But we talk about the commercial vehicle market. That's every vehicle that's from class three all the way up to class eight, which is from 10,000 pounds all the way up to 80,000 pounds. About 65% of those vehicles are ideal for electrification today. So they're operating on routes that are under 200 miles every single day. They're returning to base where there's dedicated infrastructure. And then ultimately they operate on predictable routes. So with those customers, a lot of the categories you saw on that page, from the food and beverage distributors to the LTL and FTL operators, to drayage operators, to construction and vocational fleets, those are our target segments. We're not going after the long haul markets where trucks are operating 600, 700 miles a day, where there's a lot of infrastructure challenges. We're going after the market that makes sense, that fleets already see a rational investment thesis. And that's where we've seen the most interest, but also customers coming over the line, buying trucks, and now us delivering trucks uh, every single day to customers. So an, another area uh, that I you know, saw in the presentation that uh, you know, really stood out to me is talking about fleet as a service. You know, we hear all the time about, you know, X as a service, you know, most familiar with SaaS, of course, um, software as a service. Can you talk a little bit about how Exos, you know, plans this fleet as a service business model and, you know, how it can help with the company's growth ahead? Yeah, it's a great question. When we were looking at starting out Exos, we saw how challenging it was to operate our own fleet from procuring the vehicle to getting financing through a separate third-party financing vendor to getting all of the warranties and extended service contracts in place, making sure that we had service providers in all the markets that we were operating trucks, procuring on-site fueling services, and then ultimately managing our telematics, checking to make sure the vehicle's uptime performance was, was on par with what our expectations were. And it became a, a really cumbersome experience to manage. We had to have multiple people to manage truck assets, to manage telematics, to manage all these different aspects. So we wanted to provide that ability for our fleet customers to have that all in a cohesive package for them so that as they start to deploy electric vehicles, they're not going to six or 10 different vendors to try and find all these services. And it's really been an exciting offering for us. Most of our customers today, such as our, our cash and transit customer, Loomis, as well as Unifirst, one of our, our uniform rental and linen companies, they're utilizing some of these services today. So some of these services are offered as an a la carte option, but eventually we're actually gonna be bundling those components. And what enables us to do that is actually the hardware on the vehicle. So we have an over the air update module that allows us this level of control and level of monitoring on the vehicle. So we can integrate with these third party vendors and ultimately manage a lot of that charging infrastructure that these fleets have to deploy to keep their vehicles on the road with the same uptime they would in a diesel vehicle, while also adhering to and monitoring their total cost of ownership. Awesome. So you talked a little bit, you know, about the targeting the last mile uh, market. So we have a couple slides here. You know, you know, as you mentioned, you're ordering lots of things online. I know uh, myself, my family, we order lots of products online. So last mile delivery, can you just, you know, tell us all about, you know, the huge market opportunity in the last mile delivery and maybe why that's such a big focus for Exos here, you know, over some of the other segments? Absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. 
So when we looked at the market, we saw where the parcel delivery and the e-commerce delivery companies were operating in. And when you look at most of the big parcel delivery companies out there, UPS, FedEx, DHL, many of them are operating in that class five, six category. And there's a very particular reason for that. As parcel delivery has transitioned away from just carrying envelopes and small packages to carrying larger volumetric packages, like your toilet paper or your groceries or any of the other things we order online, they've needed more volume and more density. So a lot of these operators have actually transitioned away from their smaller vehicles because as more and more people order online, their route density fills up. So they're actually stopping at the same amount of addresses and a fewer and a shorter distance, but their package volume has also gone up. So these class five and six delivery vehicles, they're generally not even weighing out, which means they're hitting their, their gross vehicle limit. They're actually cubing out, which is they're hitting their volumetric limit. But you wanna keep that constrained to about a thousand cubic feet because that's when the vehicle becomes really difficult to operate in some of those city streets and those neighborhoods uh, if it goes beyond that. So most of those parcel delivery companies that are ramping their fleets at you know, more than 10% a year in some cases, those companies are looking for these larger vehicles than that class two or class three category. When you look at the class eight segment and our heavier duty platform, that's also been growing because of how that logistics network in the last mile has grown. So as we start to deliver more packages on those last mile vehicles, which are generally located in neighborhoods and in suburban areas, they need more class eight product to move it from regional distribution centers to those city or suburban distribution centers. So this is what some people refer to as the middle mile, where it's still short range traffic. You're not doing five, 600 miles, but you're moving from a large distribution center to a smaller distribution center. And in places like LA where we're based, that has been an immense growth area for drayage companies, for middle mile logistics companies that are moving from the Inland Empire, they're moving their containers into the LA basin. So we see also a significant amount of growth there in what we would refer to as our, our heavy duty platform or a day cab tractor. So oh, uh, another area, you know, to talk about, we have the the flex manufacturing. So we have a slide, you, you know, talking about battery assembly, vehicle assembly. Can you talk a little bit about the manufacturing process that, that Exos has in place and will have in place for the future growth of the company? Yeah, it's it's actually a really unique process and it allows us to scale and meet that rapid demand that we've seen from customers. So what you're looking at is our first flex facility in Tennessee. And why we decided to go the flex route is because of speed. When you look to set up a traditional automotive plant, it can take about three to four years to engineer, design, build out, and then commission one of those facilities. We knew that the demand was gonna be here sooner than that. And so we wanted to think about how we could design a flexible enough platform to actually increase the speed with which we could deploy future facilities. So we've actually designed the vehicle into sub-modules, allowing us to take some of the complex processes that take time to build out a facility, like painting and stamping and robotic welding, and we've moved those to our sub-suppliers. And that allows these facilities to really become final assembly facilities that we can stand up in under a year. Why that's great is we actually have smaller footprints, so we can find more real estate around the country to actually support these facilities and do it in a very, very quick span of time. 
That facility in Birdstown, Tennessee is actually already building trucks in the long section of the building. And then in the smaller section of the building, you actually, that's where we are setting up our battery line. So our battery production today happens in our facility in Los Angeles, but we are actually taking all of the same process development, the manufacturing tools, all of the automation equipment that we've developed in Los Angeles, and we're building another line there in Tennessee. So as the vehicles get final assembled, they actually take the batteries from that building next door, drop them directly onto the vehicle, and it drives out of there under its own power. Perfect. So, you know, uh, one of the things with the SPAC merger is we get, you know, this forecast model. So we have, you know, uh, unit predictions, uh, revenue projections from Exos, you know, so we have compounded annual growth expected at 168% from fiscal 2022 to 2025 and hitting $1 billion in revenue in fiscal 2023. Can you just talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the modeling here? How much of this comes from current partners, hard orders, and how much of it is from, you know, the potential of the, the company? Yeah, so we really wanted to build a model that was going to be built from the bottom up. So taking into consideration our existing customers that are already ordering trucks, already operating trucks, and what their annual procurement levels are, and then their assumed buy-in rates. So what a lot of people think is that most fleets buy from one OEM, but in reality, they actually source from multiple OEMs. So we took that into consideration and we took all the future customers either that we're in conversations with or some customers that we are actively pursuing that we think would be ideal candidates for electrification in the last mile and vocational segments. And that's how we built out those volumes on the vehicles. <clears throat> when you look at our TCO calculations, what you'll see is that our vehicles are not priced at a significant premium to diesel vehicles. There's still a small premium that ranges from five to 25%, but that's what's converting these fleets to change over. And so when fleets see the operational savings that they realize from reduced fueling costs, reduced maintenance costs, it means that they can see a total cost of ownership savings in under five years. And that's what's really driving that growth in these charts is, Fleets are not just doing this out of the goodness of their own heart. They're doing it because it's the sound investment decision. It's the rational uh, decision to really manage their fleet, and operate their fleet. And as we look at this market, because we work with so many different customers, we're really confident in our ability to hit these numbers and, and to hit our guidance based upon historic ordering that we've seen with customers, uh, as well as some of the growth that we've seen in this last mile market for new trucks that they're, they're building out in their fleet just to meet their additional demand that they've seen since the pandemic. Perfect. So last question from me before I turn it over to, to Mitch. Uh, you know, in that forecasted model, it looks like international about 11.7% of revenue. We have a slide <clears throat> in the presentation talking about the international opportunity. Can you just give us some background? You know, what is the international opportunity and, and where does Exos currently stand in, in terms of international orders and partners? Absolutely. So international is an exciting market for us. Uh, we really started in the markets that were going to be the most make the most sense from a homologation and a regulatory standpoint. So we actually already have orders in Canada. We're in close conversations with customers in Mexico and have been working really hard there, given our, our manufacturing facility and our partners down there. And what's important is that those two markets 
of relatively similar homologation or certification standards to the US. So as we started engineering our products, our medium duty X platform and our heavy duty X platform for the US, we've had a lot of carryover engineering, testing and validation and certification that actually has been relevant for those markets. So while it's not an identical product, it's actually very similar. And so those markets are easy, really next wins for us. Uh, and we are already planning on delivering vehicles into Canada and Mexico in 2022. And then when we look at the next room for expansion or the next market for growth, we really think Europe is, is incredibly interesting. So we're already involved in conversations with some of our existing customers that have fleets and have operations in Europe. And we see that as the next big area to expand. Europe is also like the US in that they're tightening up their emissions regulations and they're actually doing it at a more aggressive rate. So the emission standards like Euro 6, as well as some of the, the subsidies and incentives that are going on there have really pushed fleets to really expand and think about how they're going to electrify their last mile vehicles there. The primary difference with Europe and why it takes a little bit more time to roll out is the certification standards are quite a bit different and the vehicle categories are a bit different. So we actually have to engineer a vehicle that's purpose-built for that European market, leveraging a lot of our technology, such as our battery systems, it's built for commercial vehicles, but actually configuring that chassis and that vehicle dynamics to, to something that's gonna be more apt for that European market. Overall though, we think international is a big potential expansion area for us, and we're really going with, with our fleets, our fleet customers pulling us there. So as we think about Europe, we're not looking to set up a, a distribution network and try and sell into that market. We've had demand from our customers actually saying, can you bring vehicles to Europe? How can we help support you in that effort? And one of the last things I'll mention about international expansion is just our ability to do it quickly with our flex manufacturing rollout. So we've actually already started exploring what international manufacturing looks like and how we could quickly set up one of those flex sites in a location that's going to support our customers throughout the EU and the UK. All right, I'm going to go ahead and hop on here now. So one of the things that I want to pay attention to is, of course, the technology. So you really essentially two platforms here, right? A medium and a heavy duty. Can you explain us a little bit more about the platforms here, the MD and the HD? Absolutely. So when we started building these vehicles five years ago and started working with customers very closely to understand what they needed, first and foremost, they were looking for a TCO savings or a total cost of ownership savings. But second, they wanted to make sure that these vehicles were going to be as durable and in most cases more durable than their existing diesel vehicles. So we needed to engineer the areas of the system that were going to be prone to durability, prone to warranty failure, or really not last in the field. And so we focused on three critical areas, which is the battery and the powertrain system, the actual software and the vehicle controls that operate the vehicle, as well as a modular chassis. So we could sell into different applications, like I mentioned before, such as parcel delivery or food and beverage, which might have slightly different configurations. What we've built actually carries over between those two platforms. So our battery and powertrain, as well as our vehicle software and controls, actually straddles both the medium and heavy duty applications as they have similar requirements for durability, for warranty, for longevity. The key difference between our MDX and our HDX platform is really the ability to support the weight of the increased heavy duty platform. So that's an air brake platform, 
to comply with the US standards for safety and certifications. And it's also a, a little bit hardened from a chassis structure perspective to ensure that these customers can operate their vehicles for 300, 400, up to 500,000 miles in the use cases they're gonna be driving. Yeah, you know, one, one of the things, at least for our viewers out there, what would be kind of a business that would use a class five and six and what would be kind of a business that use a class seven and eight? It's a really good question. So in last mile delivery, when you're thinking about e-commerce, uh, class five and six is the way to go. So that set van on the right hand side, that's going to be taking your smaller packages, your typical Amazon boxes. And then that box truck on the left hand side, that's going to be moving your, your larger goods, things like furniture, uh, from Ikea or a Peloton that you order on Amazon. So those, those box trucks are generally for larger volume packages. And then when we look at the heavy duty segment, that's really going after payload and cargo that's gonna be also last mile delivery, but it's gonna be incredibly heavy. So you can tend to think about liquids in this space. So beverage delivery, things like beer trucks, uh, sodas, refreshments, uh, as well as all of your, your snack foods. Um, they're going to generally be similar brands, so they'll also go onto those those beverage delivery trucks. That's the the beverage body truck on the right hand side, and then on the left hand side, that tractor vehicle. That's going to be used for a variety of different applications. So it'll connect to what we'd call a, a dry van trailer or a 53 foot trailer, which is a long box, and it can carry everything from that middle mile e-commerce movement, where it's moving from a large distribution center to a smaller distribution center to drayage, where it's moving containers from the port to a distribution center to all sorts of other different trailer uses. Um, so really when you're looking at heavy duty, it's for those heavier applications where the box is gonna be filled up to its maximum weight for the on-highway standards. And then medium duty is for that last mile delivery or direct store delivery where it's going to homes or to convenience stores, things like that. All right, and where I think you guys really differ here is your strategy to go after a different type of battery here, really designed for the commercial application. Um, and, and really, I mean, this, like you state on one of these slides, I'd have to scroll up, but the 90% usage over or under that kind of 200 mile usage. Is this really where the, just the, the mission behind the company came from and understanding that there, that was the kind of the, the, the target really for this company? You're spot on. So when we started the company, our fleet that we operated and the fleet that I worked in before, which was my family's business, we were operating in that under 200 mile category. And so we saw that exactly how those fleets operate and then we also talked to some of the biggest fleets in the world and asked them how we could build something that was going to be better for them. And that's what prompted us to really build our own battery system. We started several years ago and we've had those packs on road since 2018. So really we've, we've gotten an incredible amount of testing under our belt to build a system that's purpose built for the commercial vehicle industry. When you look at some of the other folks out there who are building commercial electric vehicles, they're sourcing battery systems from the likes of GM, from BMW, which were initially designed and engineered for a passenger car application, which they think is inherently de-risked, but it presents a very different set of engineering requirements. When you're starting to engineer a passenger car, you're designing for about 100,000 mile usable life. Starting warranties on a medium or a heavy duty diesel vehicle are generally around 200 to 250,000 miles. 
So it really is an entirely different system. And we knew that we had to start from really square one. So we began working with those cell suppliers and actually sourcing cells that could be put into that system. And then everything around that battery cell, actually have one of them here. Everything outside of this, we actually design, engineer, we do validation and testing on it, and then we do the final assembly on that. So if you're looking at that image, that entire module structure, our BMS system, our thermal management system, as well as the enclosures, the safety devices, and all of the harnessing that make up that pack is designed, engineered, and built by Exos. And that's incredibly important because it actually is what's driving the savings and our ability to price near diesel for the sale of the actual vehicle, but it's also the area that's gonna be the most durability prone. So as you start to deploy vehicles into the field, you wanna make sure that your battery doesn't degrade to a point where fleets aren't gonna be able to use the vehicle in eight, nine, 10 years. So we really wanted to have an incredible level of control over that battery pack system. And we've seen how difficult it is to engineer a battery system over the last few years. Uh, and we know that we're a few years ahead given some of the other folks that are just getting into that, that battery engineering and the testing. And I, I like to take credit for this, but it really is entirely dedicated to our team. Our CTO, Rob Ferber, who's an early employee at Tesla, laid the groundwork for the Roadster pack as well as the Model S pack. Um, he's actually been building battery systems for over two decades now. So not just for passenger cars, but for buses and other commercial vehicles. And so it's, it's not just about starting from scratch and, and trying to figure it out. We've learned from their experience, from Rob's experience and the rest of our team's experience, how to build a battery pack that's gonna be able to last in the field for these commercial vehicle customers' requirements. Yeah, definitely. Just uh, standing out to me on an engineering aspect is the refrigerated air cooling, you know, with the shortest uh, possible thermal path, because I think that's really, especially when you're talking about kind of fleets that are going to need more extensive work and, and going to be stop and go, stop and go. You, This is going to be, I think, one of the areas that definitely helps the battery. Uh, let's let's go ahead and transition a little bit into here. Let's go into some uh, metrics here. Let's talk the gross margin. That's what really stands out to me at 30%. I always look for above 30% here in this kind of metric. So how are you guys able to control this inside your ecosystem? So it's really a deliberate strategy in where we focus our engineering efforts. When you look at the bill of materials on a commercial electric vehicle, a majority of that cost is centered in the powertrain system. So it's gonna be wrapped up into that battery, into your high voltage and low voltage distribution systems, as well as in the power electronics. We started first by several years ago, building out our own battery systems and really being able to cost reduce and cost control so much of that battery pack. And now we've started taking on other systems such as our high voltage distribution, our low voltage distribution, uh, as well as our relays, our, our safety boxes, our charge boxes, um, and actually DC-DCs and other power electronics. And so those are gonna be the most cost intensive areas of the vehicles. And while we have to invest in the actual engineering, the testing, the design and the validation of those products, ultimately it drives better margin performance across all of our vehicles. And while it looks like it's a, it's a multi-year effort, we're able to start ticking down some of those systems. So an example is our, our battery management system. We started with off the shelf hardware and now we're engineering and designing our own hardware <clears throat> that allows us to really reduce that cost of every single board that we buy. In addition to that, it's not just about reducing costs, it's also about mitigating risk through the supply chain. 
I think everybody's seen the, the shakeup in the supply chain over the last six and even 12 months. And so we wanna really have visibility into all of the core components that are making their way into the vehicle, whether that's chipsets, whether that's battery cells, uh, or it's commodities, things like metal and aluminum. Uh, we really wanna have full purview into that supply chain so that we're not gonna have delays, obstructions, or you know, additional logistics costs in delivering and building vehicles for our customers. Uh, and that's that's really how we drive our margin performance is focusing on the areas that we really need to engineer to drive cost reduction and drive quality improvement in the platform. Yeah, definitely. You know, one thing stated, you know, the industry leading total cost of ownership, you essentially stating that right there. Um, but really, uh, another thing, the proven vehicles on the road, this is not a vehicle that just was created, you know, commercial vehicle use since 2018. I think that's definitely important. Um, and, and you guys have been, I'm sure, collecting a lot of information and data from that and advancing. So uh, I did want to just go ahead and stress that because I know a lot of people are, are probably thinking that this is relatively new. But I mean, when you have vehicles that have already been in use for that long, it, it's definitely beneficial. Absolutely. We've we've had vehicles all over the country testing in cold weather environments, testing in extreme heat, uh, actually operating with customers, right? So when we deliver a vehicle, it's in the customer's hands. So we're not just thinking about how do we deliver it, it's how do we support it in the field. And we've been able to do that with great partners. So having maintenance partners like Dickinson, having distribution partners like Lone Star and Thompson, uh, as well as some others we'll announce in the near future, has, has allowed us to do so much in such a, a short span of time. Excellent. Perfect. So we've got some questions here from the chat, uh, you know, before we let you go. So a uh, question from both NCAL and Carl, both around uh, charging. So do they partner with any charging networks? Um, and then Carl also asking what charging company or adapters are being used? Any comments on, you know, charging partners or technology? Yeah. So when it comes to charging, we're all about standardization. Uh, we think there's actually a lot of good hardware partners out there. Uh, to name a few, I think ChargePoint, ABB, they're all you know some really strong players. And so on the hardware side, we're actually not engineering. We're working with a number of those different vendors. When it comes to deploying that infrastructure, that's part of our fleet as a service offering. So actually a couple of our customers that I mentioned before, Unifirst, Loomis, as well as many others are utilizing that charging service or we're helping them deploy infrastructure at their sites where they're deploying vehicles. We have infrastructure commissioning going on in multiple states right now, West Coast, East Coast, uh, for a variety of different vehicles. Uh, but ultimately the hardware that goes into those installations is off the shelf hardware. And we're agnostic to the solution because we're using that standard connector. So most of our trucks are set up with a CCS1 charge port connector. Uh, which is capable of charging AC charging with a J1772 port or DC charging with that CCS1 connector. So it gives customers the flexibility to move the vehicles around, to utilize different infrastructure, and that's become the prevalent standard in the commercial vehicle industry. For us, it's really important to adhere to those standards so that fleets can continue to ramp their electric vehicles across the country. But as we look at deploying those fleets and helping them support them with their infrastructure, it's key that we provide that service. Most of our customers are diesel fleet operators and diesel fleet managers. So when they start to think about deploying electric vehicle infrastructure, they're not too familiar with the process that goes along with that. 
And so having that service and really helping them deploy the infrastructure, commissioning it, and then maintaining it through our service partners has been incredibly valuable for them, not just to ensure that we have trucks and infrastructure ready to go when the trucks are delivered, but also to make sure that it's maintained. So if a truck's two years down the road and your charger fails, that we're going to be accountable to getting that charger fixed in the field. Awesome. And I think that answered our, our other chat questions too, you know, talking about if your batteries were compatible with current charging technology, which, you know, it sounds like that's a definite yes. So, uh, you know, I think that's going to do it for, for our questions and the chat questions. So again, joining us on SPAX Attack today, Exo's co-founder and CEO, Dakota Sembler, that company is going public via SPAC merger, next-gen acquisition, ticker NGAC. Dakota, thanks so much for you know taking time out of your busy schedule. And uh, oh, go ahead, Mitch. I got one more. One more. Yeah. I, I, I want to come check it out. I want to come check it out. I got to come to a facility. Got to come You're see the batteries and, and see the whole action. We would love Mitch, to. we'd love to have you. And, and Chris as well, please come. We're, we're in L.A., uh, we can also, you know, visit hey, us in our facility far. in Tennessee and we'd love to have you. And thank you guys so much for for having me and, and for, you know, some really insightful questions from you as well as the audience. Thank you, Dakota. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. All right, guys, as you guys see it, another interview brought to you on the SPACs attack. Where else are you getting this? Please let me know because I need to watch myself. I mean, I, I, I love SPAC so much. If there was another show that could even compete with us, I would probably be watching it myself just because, uh, you know, we, we love our information and we love getting you guys these interviews where you, you you get a lot more than, let's say, you get on some other networks. Just because at the end of the day, we got more time. We got audience. We got engagement. This is what it's all about. This is why Benzinga is killing it. The new media, not the old. And with that, I mean... Let's go ahead and just kick out the old media, keep the engagement up. Chris, what did you learn from the interview? Yeah, you know, another exclusive interview, guys. We, we've got over 300 people in here. Please smash that like. Share this video. Let everyone know, as Mitch said, this is the place to learn about SPACs, to hear from the CEOs directly. Ben Zinga doing CEO interviews across several shows every day. So this is the place to be. Mitch, I really like the comments on, you know, the last mile delivery. You know, we see it all around us, right? As Dakota said, he's ordering more products online. I'm ordering more products online. So they're going after that target market, right? You know, we've got trucks class two all the way to class eight. And instead of maybe spreading themselves out across all those segments, they're going after the highest growth ones. I mean, that, that seems to make sense to me, right? Go where the market is, go where the demand is. So, you know, I, I really like that part of the business model. Yeah, it was interesting to me, you know, one of my biggest questions and I and then I'll say it to, you know, Chris and I were talking before we always talk a little bit in the the kind of the pre-show. I was w w why not big trucks? Why not long haul? I, I got that answered question. I got that question answered without even asking the question and which is so important, I think, you know, so definitely Dakota, if you're out there listening, great answer to that one because it was a big question of mine, you know, when the first thing I saw was I mean, why not a semi truck, you know, like a, a long term compete with Tesla kind of semi truck? I got that answer because 90 percent of the trips are small. And if 90 percent of the trips are, are short, what, which kind of market would you want to be going after? 
I love that answer. And then that's why I asked him the question of which was kind of more the mission behind the company, why he even thought about it. And he said it himself. He had some expertise seeing these fleets being managed. And that's why he went after this kind of area and specifically in his commercial area. So I think it's very interesting that his answers. Yeah, no, uh, you know, an actual product already out too. You know, that's a big plus over maybe some of those uh, unnamed <laughs> rivals. AJ. Yeah, AJ calling it out. I mean, they're they're not they're not rolling anything downhill uh, at this company, Mitch. So they're they're driving on the road, Mitch. Before we go, can you just pull up that chart for UP wheels up again? Yes. I don't remember who it was. Thank Oops. you, whoever did it. But someone in the chat actually mentioned. So the CEO was on CNBC. Mm. So Mitch. Mitch, explain with me here. I, I just want to walk through for the viewers quick. So so here's what happens, right? I, I called it out on the show yesterday that 56% of shares were redeemed, you know, at the SPAC merger vote. So mm -hmm. today you start trading under the new ticker UP. So, so we get the news out there, right? That wheels up, we'll begin trading. It's got the new ticker, but the flow is half right? The float is less than half of, of what it was as a SPAC. So yep. there's way less shares out there, right? And then the CEO goes on CNBC. So when you combine those two things, right? You have CNBC, him calling out, you know, the stock and the, and the shares, people buying the shares, but there being less shares available, you know, show us on the chart, Mitch, how do those two things really collide? And why maybe is this such an important thing to pay attention to, to the lower flow? Yeah, you know, one of the things with whenever you have a lower flow or a stock that's lowering the float, remember the stock has kind of a, a price action that it's used to, right? And so it's used to that supply being there. But what you're doing is essentially, there's two ways that you can attack a stock, right? There's supply, or demand. And usually they go hand in hand. Sometimes you're going to get the opposite though, when the supplies is going down and the demand is going up. And so this actually creates a rapid pace towards the stock price. And it's actually, it gives it a multiplier effect because what you're essentially doing is just taking away from the pie and everyone trying to get one of those slices. And so the pie, instead of getting bigger, we're talking about the pie getting smaller here. And so definitely pay attention to that. I think it's something that you're going to start seeing consistently in a lot of these, um, you know, and it's also the opposite way. When you see uh, SPACs that are going further and further into their share count, that's when you're going to start expecting the stock not to react so highly volatile. And so we've always talked about low float stocks being volatile. Same thing you can expect in the SPAC industry. Yeah, and this is why I said, you know, one to watch in the future. And again, guys, this is not a buy recommendation, but TDAC merging with lottery.com. They, they've one. already done several redemptions and people have already redeemed shares. So their float has already gotten smaller and they haven't even hit their SPAC merger vote date yet. It, it, that's something to pay attention to is when shares get redeemed. And Mitch, that's something I, I think we should bring to the SPACs attack audience. So throughout this vote process, I, I want to highlight some of these companies that have large redemption because I think, you know, whether we like it or not, it, it's a possible tradable, um, you know, market effect here. So that's going to do it, though, uh, SPACs attack. So as Mitch said, 
Um, he'll be rocking solo the next couple of days, but don't go anywhere. Make sure you tune in to, to my man, Mitch. Um, and also don't go anywhere because we have Power Hour coming up next. Yeah, guys, stay tuned. I'm going to have some fun tomorrow. We'll, we'll really get into some deeper action. I got Chris not here, so I'm going to go wild. Let me have some fun. I'm sure I'll hear about it. But up next, guys, on Power Hour, you got QIPT. Definitely check that out. There's going to be an interview on there. And like always, they're going to have great traders like they do on Power Hour. Check it up and, and let us know. What do you guys want on SPACs Attack? What's the next company? Hit us up in the comments. You guys put one there. I'll make sure that Zotin in the chat reaches out. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. We'll see you guys on the Power Hour. Like always, guys, stay tuned and hit up Chris. Chris Catchy.